2: Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to
0: Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it
0: is the Serpentine Hour here on Weird House Cinema, because today, Rob, Rob am
1: I right that this is our first snake movie? It is. Uh, I mean, we've, we've certainly had some snakes and even killer snakes pop up in some of our Florida movies that we did, including uh, Zat and Frogs, but Venom is going to be our first true snake movie. Now, this movie is called Venom, but no, it's not that
0: Venom. No, it's not that other one either. It's it, This is Venom 1981,
1: the original Venom. Or, well, one of the original Venoms. I noticed that there are multiple films with the title Venom. So I'm not sure if this one is the true originator, but uh, it's the one that we're talking about here today. Man, I love a good snake romp. Uh, I,
0: I, you know, a, a snake movie really, it just gets you by the gut sometimes. Uh, so you, I, I love, as we've discussed before, the the campy uh, supernatural pleasures of the lair of the white worm um, to, uh, to even what I would argue is maybe the best creature feature of all time. The 1997 Amazon snake hunt movie, Anaconda uh, (laughs) in which the cardinal rule of great snake movies is observed. and, And this is what I would argue. The rule is any creature movie featuring an unusually large or unusually deadly reptile. Must also contain at least one human actor who is more reptilian than the creature itself. Now, in the case of Anaconda, the you've got your giant CGI reptile, but it is being constantly upstaged by John Voight delivering one of the most bizarre performances I have ever seen in any movie. Uh, you, you know, he, you just look at him, and you can tell his blood is room temperature. When he blinks <laughs> his eyes, they go horizontal. Uh, and uh, and his accent is just radioactive weirdness. He sounds like he's trying to sort of be Peter Lorre, doing a like Spanish Count Dracula kind of thing, but also <laughs> as a, a a ruthless jungle poacher with a ponytail. So that movie definitely adheres to the
1: rule. But I think today's pick also observes the rule. That's right. Uh, Venom is a very interesting film in large part because it features not one but two notoriously difficult actors oliver reed and Klaus kinski um uh, and and there's actually another uh, uh, reportedly difficult actor in this as well uh so you can really up that to three but it's especially evident with reed and kinski based on some of the stories and the fact that they share a lot of screen time in this film um so you can imagine if they were constantly shouting at each other uh and almost coming to blows it would uh, it would have been a a particularly terrible working environment for everyone on the picture. You can feel the bad vibes through the screen. Yes. Now, I mean, luckily, they're both playing villains and the characters are also supposed to somewhat hate each other. So, On the screen, uh, you know, putting a setting aside anything we know about the making of and these uh, these actors themselves, you know, it ends up working. Uh, But, yeah, both Kinski and Reed were kind of larger than life figures. Both were noted hedonists in their own ways. And they were they were both highly talented actors whose careers were damaged by their difficult behavior. Uh, So I I think it's fair to say that, you know, at the very least, they were both very problematic figures. Well, if you're talking about their personal lives, I think especially in the case of Kinsky, that's sort of an understatement. Oh yes, yeah. I feel like every time I learn something new about Kinsky, I uh, I regret it. Now, uh, you know, we're not going to focus, I guess, too much on their personal lives, but uh, you know, I, I admit that I, I don't necessarily have the stomach for too much of that sort of thing. But you know, some argue that Reed sort of played up this Hellraiser image for the press, though there seems no denying his um, his alcoholism and his also kind of like brute macho demeanor. Um, uh, Kinski, on the other hand, was prone to to outbursts and tantrums, it seems, and uh, seems to have suffered from mental illness. Um, he also uh, was apparently just reviled by many people who had to work with him. And I think Werner Herzog kind of stands apart as really the only filmmaker to have been able to work with him multiple times for a total of five different films. It's interesting to me, though, that, that Kinski played a vampire in two different Nosferatu films. Um, And Reed played a werewolf in one Hammer film. So, um, you know, to a large extent, we have vampires versus werewolves um, uh, in this movie and behind the scenes on this movie. Um, the, The vampire and the werewolf really do seem like monstrous reflections of the individual energies of these two actors. Okay, so
0: we, we know we're dealing with uh, Klaus Kinski and Oliver Reed, both in a snake movie. But the weird thing is, it's not just a snake movie. Really what this is, is a, a, a genre hybrid. This is a realistic
1: crime thriller plus snake. Yes. Uh, another elevator pitch I might give it is a deadly game of cat and mouse, but mostly snake. Yeah. <laughs> or Home Alone, but with snake. All, all good ways of summing it up. Another way you could sum it up is bad at crime, good at dying by snake. <laughs> yeah, uh, the the bad at crime note is is good, and this is one of those where uh, those films where the the the, uh, the criminal enterprise is perhaps not entirely well thought out and or, bad or, and or mistakes are made um, that just lead to catastrophe. So it's, it's uh, you know, it, it, in a way, it's more in sort of the, the Fargo realm of, of crime cinema. Like these are guys who really screw up and, uh, and, and, and make mistakes that are just catastrophic for their venture.
0: I also want to note that in terms of of boo mechanics, uh, I think there are basically two kinds of snake movies. So you could have like a big snake movie and a stealth snake movie. Uh, Mm -hmm. So big snake movies would be more like Anaconda. They focus on the scale of snake in order to intimidate. Uh, And this is either by having a single very large snake or by having a large quantity of regular size snakes. But your stealth snake movies have a snake instead that is regular sized, maybe especially deadly, but it hides in places you don't expect and and pops out at you. And this is a film in the latter camp. This is a stealth snake movie. This is a a movie about opening up the liquor cabinet and oops, there's a black mamba and it bit you on the face. Mm -hmm. Though it would be hilarious to try to imagine doing the same premise as this movie, like a realistic crime thriller involving a kidnapping plot plus snake. With like a giant snake or a million snakes.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I guess you could do a million snakes. It could be like the a million snakes are, are set loose in the house. I mean, isn't uh, snakes on a plane essentially that? It's like there's something else going on, right? It's not just snakes on the plane. Isn't there like a hostage scenario or something? Can I confess something? I've never seen
0: all of snakes on a plane. I started watching it and never finished it. <laughs> I I have to
1: assume there's something else going on besides snakes. So, um, yeah, uh, I think
0: there's I think there is a perfunctory crime element like somebody. It's like a, a witness in a mob case or something is being transported on a plane. But I would say snakes on a plane goes big snake because
1: the issue is there are many snakes on the plane. This film, with the, with the single snake um, threat, it reminds me a lot of the Sherlock Holmes adventure, um, uh, the adventure of the speckled band, which concerns like a very deadly venomous snake that is responsible for a death. Um, and I wouldn't mm. be surprised if that was ultimately one of the inspirations on this story. Well, I think it's got a lot of actors who were in Sherlock Holmes movies and, and TV series in Britain, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. We have more than more than one Sherlock Holmes connection here for sure. Well, let's go ahead and jump right into the trailer here.
2: Venom. The kidnap that became a murder, that became a siege, that became a death trap. (laughs) Venom. The fear explodes, trapping both hostages and kidnappers in its grip. The panic spreads, sending an entire police force into action. But this is a terror unlike anything anyone has ever faced. And when it uncoils to strike, your blood will run cold. Venom. Whatever you feel, you will fear. Venom.
0: Dude, this is classic creature feature narration, uh, trailer narration. (laughs) I absolutely love it. What does he say? Venom, the kidnap that became a murder, that became a siege, that became a death trap. Venom! (laughs) Yeah, they do a really good job of selling this movie in that trailer. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, he also says this line. I kept thinking about it. I was like, what does it mean? Uh, He says, whatever you feel, you will fear. Does that mean that Hmm. once you start thinking about snakes, like anytime something touches your body, I don't know, you brush against the the door frame as you're walking through it, or I I don't know, like a a leaf falls on your shoulder, you're always going to think it's
1: a snake? I guess so. If we're being generous, I guess that's maybe what the the ad copy here is trying to say. What what else would it mean? That's a weird line. Whatever you feel, you will fear. I don't know. It doesn't really make much sense within the context of the film. Like, like, yeah. I feel happy. Oh no. Maybe it was the the directing um, of the 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 actors. They just said, like they're like, well, what's my character? What's my motivation? And the director says, I don't know. Whatever you feel, uh, you'll fear. Uh, and they're like, okay, because it does seem like for the most part, a lot of these uh, actors were just kind of turned loose to just do their their thing with the character, mm. uh, and there's not really. Uh, necessarily a great sense of who the underlying character is supposed to be do you remember how how did you come across this movie what what, what's the origin story here um i have a couple of different uh blu-rays of just trailers from like Uh the 70s and 80s and i was watching a a compilation and this one popped up and i was like oh now this this looks interesting
0: i suspected that because this is very much one where if you see the trailer you're like yep okay gotta see that one
1: (laughs) Well, let's jump right in and talk about the various humans and the snakes involved in this film. So the director is Piers Haggard, born 1939. Uh, Interestingly enough, Toby Hooper was going to direct this picture uh, originally and I think may have been working on it a little bit, but then he had to bow out for some reason. And I, I think there are varying accounts as to why. Uh, And then enters Haggard here, uh, who had previously directed the 1971 British horror film The Blood on Satan's Claw, A Divorce, The Quartermass Conclusion. Uh, also, the Peter Sellers comedy, The Fiendish Plot of Dr. Fu Manchu, which, which everyone seemed to hate in 1980 and it's still uh, very much hated today, uh, seemingly with good reason. And uh, he also directed various TV episodes. Uh, he went on to do more TV and a potentially interesting-looking sci-fi um, uh, film, uh, TV film uh, titled "The Life Force Experiment" in 1994. Oh, that's um, interesting. Another interesting thing about him is he was dialogue assistant on the 1966 film "Blow Up." So he did the Life Force Experiment, and he was
0: he came in to direct a movie that Toby Hooper was going to direct, and Toby Hooper directed
1: Life Force. Right. I don't know that there's any connection between Life Force and the Life Force Experiment, but okay, uh, certainly the names are similar. Now, this is an adaptation of a novel. Uh, it's worth stressing: um, the original novel *Venom* was written by Alan Schofield, who lived 1931 through 2017, a South African author who I think lived um, most—I may have lived most of his life in England. I think he was like England, uh, you know London-based or something. Uh, but this book came out in 1977, and it still seems to be in print. Uh, you can you can go obtain this book and read it. Uh, I've never read any of uh, his novels, but he was quite prolific. He also wrote a 1981 horror novel called Cat's Eyes under the name Lee Jordan. And it seems like he was seems like he was reasonably well regarded and often worked African history and culture into his works. Uh, apparently, best known for his McCrae and Silver novels, which were London-based detective books. Hmm. Now, the screenplay was written by Robert Carrington, born 1928, who wrote such films as Wait Until Dark and Fear is the Key, and he was active in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. All right, let's move on to the actors. So, um, our reptilian humanoid uh, in this film is, of course, Klaus Kinski, um, who lived 1926 through 1991. He plays the character Jacques Mel. So, this is one of our main uh, trio of criminals. Yes. Uh, I guess he's kind of the mastermind. Um, mm-hmm. He's, uh, uh, he's uh, supposed to be, I think we it mentions at one point that uh, he's a member of the, the, the German under, uh, underworld. He's like a German underworld figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is, of course, flown in to London to, uh, to, to mastermind this sort of, I'm not sure if he's the mastermind or not. Uh, but anyway, he's going to be one of the main operatives in this kidnapping plot. Uh, yeah, I think he's played as the mastermind
0: because there are a lot of scenes of him pointing a gun at Oliver Reed and being like, remember, you know, you
1: you don't drink whiskey until I tell you to. (laughs) All right. So Kinski, uh, of course, a German-born actor, perhaps best remembered today for his smoldering presence in some of Werner Herzog's best-known works, such as Aguirre, The Wrath of God, Wojciech, Nosferatu the Vampire, Fitzcarraldo, and Cobra Verde. Uh, he also had a small but memorable role in Dr. Zhivago in 1965, and accounts of anyone who had to work with Kinsky they tend to revolve around two different things. His raw talent, uh, you know, that undeniably, like, there's something electric in a Klaus Kinsky performance, uh, but also intense difficulty and displeasure of working with him. Uh, it seems to be a common theme, um, Herzog managed it, but also had a just legendarily explosive relationship with Kinski. And at times, uh, from from uh, you know stuff I've watched, uh, you know documentaries and so forth, it seems like he was able to get his, the best stuff out of Kinski by. Uh, by sort of manipulating him, like, for instance, um, wearing him out with takes in the case of Aguirre, like uh, Kinski has this uh, monologue at the end of it, and Kinski thought he needed to rage uh, through it. And um, Herzog uh, reportedly just had him do it over and over again until he was just worn out and could only deliver it at the energy that Herzog uh, wanted. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, th- I th- thought that was an insightful story about uh, about uh, working with Kinski. It seems like he was raging a lot. Yes, yes, um, certainly behind the scenes. Uh, So Kinski did a number of spaghetti westerns as well, including for a few dollars more, as well as various European genre films. He played a, a vampire in Herzog's 1979 Nosferatu film, as well as the 1988 film Vampire in Venice. This was supposed to, I think, be a sequel to Nosferatu in some respects, but um, Kinski reportedly refused to wear any any vampire makeup for it. And so he doesn't look like Nosferatu in it, per se. After a career of butting heads with various directors, he finally directed himself in 1989's uh, Paganini, which he also wrote. And this was his final film. Hmm. Now, a um, f- couple of interesting facts. Um, allegedly, Kinski turned down the role of Major Tot in Raiders of the Lost Ark because he hated the script, uh, and Venom is the picture he did instead. Oh, both snake-centric movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, And of course, Ronald Lacey wound up doing the, the, the character of Major Tots, which I think, he's so great in it, this is the best thing that could have happened. As for Kinski's performance in Venom here, uh, I'd say he's, he, what we see on the screen is, is very good. He's menacing. He exudes evil, uh, very much plays to his strengths. Though there is a scene where he has to fight a rubber snake. And uh, let's be honest, that's a tall order for any actor.
0: I think his snake wrestling scene is, is a highlight of the film, especially because it turns <laughs> into a gunfight with a snake. Yes. Yeah. A lot. Ha- yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a great climax. You just wouldn't think that if a snake is wrapping around you and you're trying to fight it off, the, the solution you would come to is trying to shoot the snake in the head with a pistol. Right.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful scene. Though, I'm, I think Herzog could have gotten a better, uh, better take out of him. He was just, like, worn him down until he got the right energy.
0: Okay, so uh, Kinski is playing our, our, like, lead reptilian criminal in
1: this. But then we've also got a, a more brutal criminal Right, that is Dave the chauffeur, played by Oliver Reed. Oliver Reed lived nineteen thirty eight through nineteen ninety nine. English actor with piercing eyes. Uh, really, his as far as like eyes first acting goes, um, Reed was a master of this. You know, just sitting there smoldering and looking at you with murder eyes. Oh, he uses the murder eyes
0: in this film. Part of the problem, though, is like there's there's really not any surprise as the plot is revealed because we first see Oliver Reed, I don't know, 30 seconds into the film, just acting in his capacity as a chauffeur. And he already looks like he is not just getting ready to do murders, but has already done them. He looks like he just came (laughs) back in a hurry from doing murders.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, He always had a knack for playing brute, macho characters. Uh, And of course, he increasingly earned a reputation for hell raising, drinking and, and being difficult to work with. Uh, he had his first big leading role in the Hammer film, um, The Curse of the Werewolf from Terence Fisher, from, uh, came out in 1961. And he landed some huge roles in such films as 1968's Oliver, in which he plays the villain Bill Sykes. Uh, he played Athos in um, Three Musketeers in 73 and its sequel in 74. And he continued to do a lot of villain roles and roles in horror films. He worked with Ken Russell several times, including Women in Love and, of course, The Devils, uh, in which he, he he really delivers a memorable performance. He played the god Vulcan in Terry Gilliam's The Adventures of Baron Munchausen in 88. Uh, other notable roles, at least to me, include Disney's Condor Man in 1981, in which he plays this uh, the villain in this ridiculous kind of superhero James Bond kind of um uh, uh, film uh he plays the um i guess he's the hero in david cronenberg's the brood no and, no uh, he is not the hero he's not the hero oh it's no been, i guess i've forgotten most of that film <laughs> he's the villain he's the, the manipulating psychiatrist sort right? of yeah psychologist.
0: yeah he, he plays an unorthodox psychiatrist who has like a retreat where he leads people through these strange exercises and gets them to um uh, to sort of like turn their 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 psychic pain and trauma into like physical external manifestations. So like uh, oh, I don't know right. he leads people through these exercises where like their pain is turned into, in the case of one character, like a physical tumor, but in the case of other characters, like uh like literal like little like beings or monsters that run around. Uh, the brood is a gross movie. Be forewarned if you're gonna if you're gonna venture there.
1: Yeah, Samantha Egger is in that, and I have to I have to look it up. Let's see what Oliver Reed's uh, character's name. What was his weird Cronenbergian character? Doctor Hal Raglan. Yeah, not not that weird as far as Cronenberg names go. Uh, yeah, my memory is just that he's like a, a weird
0: sort of unethical, unorthodox psychiatrist who's doing a combination of something like you know, like Scientology uh, auditing at the uh, alongside like creating tulpas
1: and stuff. Mm, okay. Yeah, it's been a, been a while since I've seen that one. Oh, we should also mention Oliver Reed was, of course, in Ridley Scott's Gladiator in 2000. And this was his final film. Uh, he died during the filming of it in Malta, I believe. Now, uh, here's a fun fact. Venom is not the only Oliver Reed snake movie. He also appeared in 1983 Spasms alongside Peter Fonda. And this one, Joe, is a giant snake movie. Okay, big snake instead of stealth snake. Yeah. <laughs> so. um you can look up various stories about the production of Venom basically yeah, Reed and Kinsky famously did not get along on the film uh, reportedly hated each other and Reed allegedly kept intentionally setting Kinsky off um, which sounds absolutely <laughs> dreadful you know you already have Kinsky, who is uh, you know has a reputation for being Satan yes yeah, Satan and then you have and then you have Oliver Reed provoking Satan and like uh, pranking Satan and you know just to get a, a rile out of himself so, so yeah, this, this sounds absolutely dreadful for everybody else on the production. That being said, much like uh, we said with Kinski, Reed, I, I feel like he's good in this. I don't know. I feel like at times maybe they weren't sure exactly who this character was supposed to be. Sometimes he just seems to be like loud and abusive because he needed to do something in the scene. Um, but but also, I, I guess the better parts of the performance. They drive home that this is a guy who, yes, has signed on to be part of a kidnapping plot, but also has misgivings about it. And there are times where you see like maybe um, his gentler nature uh, shine through just a little bit as if to give you hope that he might turn good guy and strangle Klaus Kinski's character, Jock Mel. Uh, though, of course, that doesn't come to pass. He remains a bad guy throughout
0: yeah never really has the face turn uh he, he, yeah mainly you get the idea that the moments where he's showing misgivings are actually just like when it would it would be bad to go to prison i don't want that
1: yeah 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 he doesn't have a true change of heart i will say this uh, as well though um reed uh, has a wonderful mustache in this film often mm-hmm. often he had wonderful mustaches and uh, and this is no exception
3: Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you'll get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit com slash hypergig for details. But actually, the
0: star power in the movie doesn't really stop there with, with the criminals because this movie has a number of other actors who are well known and uh, and quite respected. This is something I remember I, I watched the uh Siskel and Ebert review of this movie in which uh, <laughs> Ebert did not like it but Siskel did and Oh did he okay yeah um you know occasionally Gene Siskel you could see there was like a ridiculous creature horror movie and you could just tell he just kind of liked it and had a hard time explaining why, but he just liked it he just wanted to be (laughs) like, yeah, yeah. I thought Wes Craven's shocker. It was fun. You know, it was interesting. Maybe it's not interesting, but you liked it. Come on, admit you liked it. Um, And he, I don't know why I'm talking like that because he did, he recommended it on the show um and he did with like i think he also liked Roger Cormans Carnosaur and and stuff like that <laughs> so occasionally he just had a soft spot for creature films and but one thing that a lot of critics talked about was how wow you really got an A level cast in this movie and so the the casting goes on with Sterling Hayden
1: yeah, uh, Sterling Hayden. Oftentimes, it looks like he has top billing. I don't know why the uh, I don't really know how billing order goes, and especially over the decades of a film that's come out. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, uh, Sterling Hayden uh, plays uh, Grandpa Howard Anderson, aka Grandpa Safari. That's what I kept thinking of him as. Um, but uh, he this is a, this guy was a big name. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean Sterling Hayden. He was in
0: uh, he he was a villain in The Godfather. He plays a a. Uh corrupt police chief who is helping uh, one of the other families with their with their schemes. Mm-hmm. He gets shot in the forehead by Al Pacino. Um, oh, yes, in that that very memorable scene in the restaurant, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh but he also he also plays a great villain role in Doctor Strangelove. He is the he plays General Jack D Ripper. He's the guy who initiates <laughs> the uh the sneak attack on the Soviet Union that sets off the whole chain of events on the plot because he has quite clearly uh, consumed a lot of anti-communist propaganda and lost his mind. He's the character who believes that fluorination
1: is stealing our precious bodily fluids. <laughs> um, He was also in Asphalt Jungle. Uh, he was in Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. Uh, now, he he lived 1916 through 1986 and this was his last feature film role but it capped off a long career full of A lot of leading man roles, especially westerns and noir films. Um, He is, I I was not prepared to enjoy his performance as much as I did, but Mm -hmm. I feel like he's a lot of fun uh, as Grandpa Safari here, in part because maybe it comes down to the fact that I I, I do feel like most of the actors in this film were just kind of turned loose in the house, much like a wild beast, and just like do whatever. And I, I, I like the strange energy he brings to this performance at times.
0: I yeah I agree. So the other two characters we've talked about already are, are criminals and and, uh, and bring a lot of menace. Uh, Grandpa Safari here is uh, he's just like a big old ball of fun. He he plays this character like a uh, a an old rough and tumble rascal.
1: Yeah, and also, I mean, he's, he's the grandpa, and the grandson uh, is, uh, is one of the main characters there. And, like, the grandson s- seems to suffer from some severe form of asthma, which requires the house to be at a constant 75 degrees, and he has to have, like, a humidifier. And his mom seems very much of the mindset, like, he needs to be kept in the house. But grandpa's like, oh, what you need, son, I'm going to get you a, a cab ride across town to buy yourself a new snake. Uh-huh. Get to do yep. it all by yourself. Yep. And, of course, that becomes central to the plot. Now,
0: maybe we should specify in the plot that there is a mix-up. Grandpa did not buy his grandson a black mamba (laughs) on purpose.
1: Yeah, I thought that's where it was going, because I knew that a black mamba was going to be introduced into the house. And I was like, oh, man, Grandpa, this is a little bit reckless. Uh, But no, it it was supposed to be a normal, like, non-venomous snake, some sort of, uh, you know, acceptable pet species. And there is a mix-up. But the A-list cast continues. Yes, uh, because we've we've talked about the criminals. We also have to have a representative of law and order. Uh, and in this case, we have Scotland Yard's commander William Bullock, played by Nicol Williamson, who lived 1936 through 2011. I knew him best I think a lot of list, a lot of uh, listeners, a lot of viewers of films would probably know him best as Merlin in the endlessly shiny 1981 Camelot film Excalibur uh, which is a, a super fun performance as I remember. I've never seen it. Oh it's it's good, it's very shiny like the, the armor gleams um, like it's you know gl- it's reflecting the, the the light of the sun at all times. so, so it's very stylish and has a wonderful cast. He also plays a similar role in 1997 Spawn. Uh, he plays this character uh, Cagliostro, who's kind of like uh, I think basically portrayed as like a wizard character that helps Spawn, um, mm. helps him fight demons, trains him or something. He's kind of his mentor character. Oh, uh, and oh, that was oh. his final film role.
0: He's kind of like a what? He, he, does he wear like a cowboy hat and a coat? Kind of.
1: Yeah, if I remember correctly, they they wanted him to to grow a beard, and he's like, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> like they wanted him to be more of a wizard uh, but he was a, a highly regarded actor um, on the stage and screen uh, other credits include The Exorcist 3 uh, The 7% Solution he play, in that he plays Sherlock Holmes this is the um, film adaptation of the Nicholas Meyer novel uh, and uh, you know Nicholas Meyer we talked about uh, in terms of uh, time after time uh, uh, well you know he, we mentioned that he wrote the, the novel The 7% Solution and it was made into the film well this was The Sherlock Oh, okay. He was in, uh, so uh, Williamson was also in Robin and Marian. uh He was in 1969's Hamlet, uh, playing Hamlet. He was uh, in a TV movie uh, version of, of Mice and Men playing Lenny. And uh, while very talented on both stage and screen, he was also known to be a bit erratic, uh, was a heavy drinker later in life, uh, and was said to be difficult to work with. So... Uh, so you know we have so we have reed we have kinsky and we also have williamson though i guess the situation is reed and kinsky were working together together like they shared so much screen time and for the most part williamson's character is just standing outside like shouting in. or not even yeah. quite shouting it's one of those movies where where his character is using just a normal speaking voice but can be heard inside a house a, a yeah. good distance away
0: yeah they spend a lot of uh There are multiple scenes where they're negotiating, like, uh, we need a car and we need money. And then he goes away and then he has like a meeting with all his little police lieutenants. And then he comes back and they talk again about how they need a car and they need money.
1: Yeah, Uh, I'd say Williamson is good in this, but there's not a lot to this particular character. He's just that sensible British cop on the scene. You know, he's our he's our embodiment of uh, British working class law and order.
0: Yeah, he's got a he's got a nice uh, accent in it. I mean, but it, it, this character doesn't have a, a whole lot to do. Now, the next character I would say though brings a surprising amount of weird energy that also makes this movie come alive, and that is Sarah Miles playing the snake expert Dr. Marion Stowe. I really liked her. She she had a certain um, uh, kind of uh, distracted electricity kind of coming off of her head mm-hmm. in, in all of her scenes, if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, no, she was good in this. Um, uh, Sarah Miles was born in 1941, and uh, another connection to 1966 blow-up. Um, uh, so, uh, Miles ha- actually had a major role in uh, in this uh, adaptation of Julio Cortazar's story. Uh, um, I can't remember if it was a novella or short story offhand, um, but anyway, it was adapted into this film in 1966, Uh, Other titles on her filmography include Ryan's Daughter, Hope and Glory, White Mischief, and more. There are a lot of good scenes of her talking to the police about
0: snakes. And so, you know, a couple, she'll just be like, I am a toxicologist. And the cop will be like, what's that, poisons?
1: (laughs) Yeah, she's she's good. Uh, The other great uh, performance in this, in my opinion, is our third kidnapper, Uh, who the the character is uh, uh, Louise Andrews played by Susan George. Uh, So George was born 1950, probably best known for playing Amy in Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs. Other titles include uh, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, Mandingo, and Enter the Ninja, as well as uh, Tintoria, Killer Shark, uh, The Sorceress starring uh, Boris Karloff, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1972, a musical Starring Kirk Douglas. Oh uh, yeah, Susan George is good in this. She so she, yeah, like you say, she's our third criminal
0: in the trio. So you got Kinski, you got Oliver Reed, and you got Susan George, and they're scheming to do this kidnapping plot to get a bunch of ransom money. Uh, of course, the criminals in this movie are bad at crime, so they keep failing. But you can uh, I. I don't know. It's fun the way you see her like struggling with things not going their way and she also I got to say
1: really sells a snake bite to the face death scene quite well. Yes, I would say uh perhaps the greatest death by snake bite scene in any motion picture. It's a tour de force in which she she thrashes around. She cries out and basically goes just full exorcist towards the end, like you know, all the way into the um, into like wheel pose or you know, reverse crab or something. She turns blue. There's a lot of blood coming out of her mouth. Yeah, so, so she's she, she's a lot of fun. Um, in, in passing, I'll say that uh, the mother in this, so this would be Grandpa Safari's uh, daughter. Uh, yeah, or is it his daughter-in-law? I can't remember. No, his daughter. At any yeah. rate. Uh, Ruth Hopkins, played by Cornelia Sharp, born 1943, probably best known for Serpico. Uh, She also appeared in The Reincarnation of Peter Proud, The Next Man, uh, opposite Sean Connery, Open Season, and, hey, The Adventures of Pluto Nash. (laughs) (laughs) She's just
0: sort of in the beginning and the end of this movie, though, because a lot of it's like she's gone and the the son has been left there with Grandpa, played by Sterling Hayden, and that's when the, the crime is supposed to take place.
1: Yeah, I mean the whole thing. It's it's kind of a Home Alone movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also it's it's weird. I don't know if you had this experience, but I felt like this movie felt like an adaptation of like a Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episode that doesn't exist. You know, like mm. or maybe it's just that a Treehouse of Horror episode would be perfect based on this film. You could have Grandpa Simpson in there. You have uh, <laughs> yeah. have Bart. And, uh, I don't know who else, uh, w- would be involved, uh, who you would cast as our, our, our kidnappers. Oh, yeah. So I guess Kins. Yeah.
0: Snake? Oh, Snake. I mean, let's see. To play for Oliver Reed, he would need to be sort of a cross between Snake and Groundskeeper Willie. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know exactly how it would work out. So Kinski is sort of Mr. Burns, but I guess he wouldn't need the money, but I don't know. He'd want it anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it would work out somehow. <laughs> oh, but hey, this movie also has Michael Goff
1: in it. Oh, yeah, in a a, a, a strange role uh, because okay. So, so first of all, uh, if you're forgetting who this actor is, uh, it's it's Alfred from Tim Burton's 1989 Batman film and the Batman sequels through Batman Forever. Um, He's a guy who did a lot of work prior to that, including performances in The Boys from Brazil, Satan's Slave, Crucible of Horror, Trog, Women in Love, uh, Horror of Dracula, and titles going all the way back into the 1940s. And in this, he plays, what, like an expert snake catcher who never does anything.
0: Yeah, he he shows up later in the movie. So this movie has multiple snake experts. There's the one played by Sarah Miles, um, who is... Uh, the toxicologist and, and you meet her early on, but then she eventually also gets taken hostage by the criminals. And then, so the police after that are working with this character played by Michael Goff, but he he's just got sort of like one of those snake hooks and he's standing there
1: beside the police as they're uh, like trying to bust into the house. Yeah. And you you keep thinking, well, he's going to be called upon for more than his expertise, but no, he's not. Uh, the fun part uh, of this though, is that his character's name is David Ball. And the real David Ball, an overseer of reptiles at the London Zoo, was the snake wrangler and snake advisor on this film. So I guess Goff's character is kind of just a nod uh, uh, to his his help with the film. Uh, I was reading about this in a New York Times article about um, about the snake wrangling in Venom. Uh, It was titled In Venom, the Snake Steals the Show. And it shares a number of uh, interesting production facts. I love that there is an article
0: in the New York Times in 1982 about Venom that is not just a mm-hmm. review of the movie.
1: It's like, I, you yeah, know, our readers need more Venom content. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it it just share some fun stuff. Like, apparently, they shot 10 hours of snake footage for the film. And of course, that mm. gets, you know, uh, reduced down to just, uh, uh, you know, very little of that—just minutes of footage. Um, they used five different actual black mambas uh, in the picture. So when you see black mambas uh, striking at, at the, the camera and and slithering about, it's the real thing. It's the it's the real snake. Um, for the most part, they also apparently had one non-venomous rat snake that they used for some uh, scenes. They had plastic snakes made from actual uh, casts of, uh, of mambas. Uh, that's, of course, what Kloskinski winds up fighting at the end. And they also had a $100,000 robot snake that apparently looked terrible, so we barely see it in the final film.
0: Yeah, I think the sentence in the article is something like the 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 robot snake could rear up and open its mouth. It cost a hundred thousand dollars to make, and it appears for one third of one second in the final cut.
1: Now, uh, according to um, uh, to David Ball uh, in this article, black mambas are very high strung and they feel threatened by anything within six feet of them. They have really potent venom, and they're very effective at delivering it, usually via multiple bites, uh, which is something we see in the film. Uh, and, and it's a, it is a very impressive snake. There's one at Zoo Atlanta, and I've seen it many times. They can they can reach lengths of 14 feet. Yeah, they tend to be nervous. They pack tremendous venom. It's the largest venomous snake in Africa, and the second largest venomous snake in the world, right behind the king cobra. It's not actually black, but the inside of its mouth is black, and that's what it flares uh, as a warning to uh, you know anyone who makes it nervous. Now,
0: a bit of monster science on this, the uh, the the movie repeatedly emphasizes that the Black Mamba is the most, uh, I think it actually uses the word poisonous. I think you would want to say venomous instead, but mm-hmm. uh, whichever one they say poisonous or venomous snake in the world, which uh, I mean, it's difficult. There are different ways you can measure that, but just by your standard, like pure LD50 ratings of snake venom and mice, this is not true.
1: Uh, I, I should also point out, as with pretty much any snake reptile amphibian sort of uh, movie it 's always worth going to californiaherps dot com they have uh, a section about snake films in which they they weigh in on different uh, on different snakes and different films and they have a they have an article on uh, um, on on venom here, and uh, it, it, basically they applaud the use of real black mambas. And the, but they add, quote, oddly enough, the snake doesn't try to get out or hide as you'd expect a snake to do. All it wants to do is kill people. <laughs> it sort of hunts the people in the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh, one of the the most ludicrous things about this movie is that yes, I I, I totally believe everything I've read about the black mamba being a potentially dangerous snake that you absolutely don't want running around in your house. Um, You wouldn't want to, you know, go poking around haphazardly where you knew they might be. But on the other hand, I mean, it's implied in this film where, like, if, if you were to call the, the police and say, I, there's a black bomb in my house, the police would just be like, we are legally declaring everyone in the house dead. because There's <laughs> yeah. no way you're going to survive. Uh, yes. Yeah. So though, as you're saying,
0: I, I do want to reemphasize, given what I said a minute ago, it, by these, like, LD50 charts, it is not necessarily the most venomous snake in the world. But it, as you are correct, that you absolutely don't want to be bitten by one. The, these are uh, – People uh, do die from Black Mamba Bites uh, all all the time. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right.
3: Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a guillotine Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at hypergig for details.
2: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited time bundle for just 49 dollars
1: Now, we don't always mention the cinematographer on films, but uh, on this film, we have uh, Gilbert Taylor, uh, who lived 1914 through 2013. Um, He was the cinematographer on such films as Star Wars, Flash Gordon, The Omen, the Frank Langella Dracula film, Polanski's Macbeth and Repulsion, Hitchcock's Frenzy, Dr. Strangelove and various other titles. Um, He also did a bit of TV, including episodes of The Avengers.
0: This movie doesn't really stand out to me in in terms of a lot of cinematography choices uh it but though there is something that happens quite a bit which is mamba cam where you are seeing from yeah. the snake's point of view as it like crawls through heating ducts and uh and, and so yeah okay that's fun
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well and then you know we do have I guess the shots of the snake often feel uh, very well executed, uh, you know, at times they're basically doing the Raiders thing, I think, where they have some sort of plexiglass screen so that mm-hmm. the snake can can jump out, can leap uh, at the, the camera, and you don't have to worry about it actually biting anyone. Mm-hmm. As for the music on this picture, uh, it is Michael Common, who lived uh, 1948 through 2003. We've mentioned him on the show before because he scored Freejack and Tales from the Crypt: Demon Knight, as well as such movies as Highlander, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Brazil, The Dead Zone, uh, Event Horizon, which he did with the Orb. Uh, so, uh, a, a known uh, commodity in various genre films. I'd say that the the, the 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 for me anyway, I felt like the score in this movie was was traditional it was fine. It did everything you'd want a score to do. It helped uh, you know, drive home these thrilling moments and, uh, and snake scares. Uh, but other than that, it's not the kind of thing I would want to seek out. I thought
0: there were some strange choices in terms of scoring, not because the music was bad, but I thought like sort of oddly placed. Uh, maybe we can talk about those a little bit when we break down the plot. Well, let's go ahead and get into the plot. All right. So the movie begins with a shot of a schoolhouse, kind of a Weird choice for a a, a crime thriller plus snake movie, but uh, I guess, you know, it's about an attempted kidnapping of a rich boy. So we got to see the boy getting out of school. I guess there's an American flag flying out on the balcony in front of the school. But it's clearly in Britain, and we we see a sign later saying it's the American Academy of London. So I think this is a school for American children, the children of diplomats and stuff like that uh, in London. And so uh, Philip is going to the school, and we meet him on the stairs reading a book. And his mom runs up to him saying, oh, this is the limit. You'll catch cold. And he's he's clearly like, oh, I I don't want to be safe.
1: I don't want to bundle up. I want adventure. So, you know, he's like, oh, mom, (laughs) I will say that the the actor they have playing the boy, um, Lance Holcomb, uh, he was really good in this. Like he has kind of a kind of a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory sort of vibe to him. Okay,
0: Uh, but so his mom uh, takes him away to a waiting sedan where Oliver Reed is just looming nearby in a comically brutish fashion Mm -hmm. And I I love the very first time we see him, it's less than a minute into the movie. He is dressed in a formal chauffeur's uniform with a cap and everything. And even in this goobery outfit, he looks, I mean, like he often does, like he just came back in a hurry from doing a series of things that are all illegal (laughs) Um, you know, he, he looks like, Oh, he just ran a bunch of errands, including, uh, purchasing illegal whale gonads on the black market and like getting into a fight. Like, you know, he, somebody looked at him wrong and he kicked them in the neck and now Mm -hmm. he's back here to drive this kid home. Do, Do you know what I mean? Like he's got this, even apart from whatever he's acting out in the scene, he just almost always looks kind of sweaty and like he has just been caught or almost been caught doing something he wasn't supposed to
1: yeah and constantly like if he were a dungeons and dragons character it would be constantly doing intimidation checks on yeah. everybody around him He's constantly busting out that that cold um, uh, intimidating stare And like I said earlier, there's really
0: no suspense about what's going to go on with this character, because as soon as uh, the the mother and son get into the car, we just see Oliver Reed looking at them in the rearview mirror with absolute murder eyes. I mean, he, he, Mm -hmm. he looks like he should be weeping blood. Uh, but then so after that we just cut to a driving scene. Gotta love a driving scene at the beginning of a movie. So we're just watching the car navigate the streets of London. Uh, The title comes up and the music gets all hopeful and peppy. Do you remember this? I thought this was a weird choice because the opening music makes it sound like it's going to be a movie about a jaunty sea voyage uh, and and teamwork and friendship.
1: Yeah, it has, it has strange energy. This was, I think, the point, too, where I, I really didn't know what the score was going to be, and I was still maybe holding out hope that it would be um, you know, electronic or something. And I was like, oh, no, it's, it's not going to be. It's going to be very traditional.
0: Uh, but yeah, whatever they're going for, it has a funny effect. So we get this driving scene in the beginning, Philip and his mom getting driven around London by Oliver Reed. He's just like drilling holes into them through the rear view mirror. And then the music is just rousing strings and brass. It's trying to warm your blood. <laughs> and then they get home and they meet Louise, the housekeeper. And, and she's like, ah, young master Philip, two whole days off school, eh? And of, of course, this is, Louise is played by Susan George, uh, and so we we learn a bit about the situation that these are Americans living in London, that uh, the boy's father has been gone for a while, and that he is there with his mother Ruth and his grandfather. And so we learn that Ruth, the mother, has to leave town soon, but young Master Philip wants to go see his zoo. That's what he calls it. He's like, my zoo. And so what does this mean? Well, he gets up to his room, and oh my God, his bedroom is straight out of Dante's Inferno. It is like a dungeon for small animals. (laughs) It is just crates and cages stacked up to the ceiling with rabbits and hamsters and and God knows what else.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's... Definitely. They're definitely overdoing it here, in my opinion. Uh, But on the other hand, uh, my my son has a leopard gecko. And I know that like just having a leopard gecko, that means, oh, well, you don't just have a pet leopard gecko. You also have pet crickets. And some people actually (laughs) go to the level of like raising their own crickets. So maybe that's part of what we're seeing here. It's like, well, he's got a bunch of snakes and so forth. Well, that means he's also raising mice.
0: Oh, I didn't think about that. But uh, so
1: you think the mice in his room are there to feed his snakes? Uh, I don't know, maybe, but then again, yeah, he has things like rabbits in there. So, um, yeah. I guess it is just a, an extended uh, you know, zoological collection here and and not just about uh feeding the animals.
0: I keep these rabbits to feed to my pet hyena. <laughs> Well, anyway, we meet Sterling Hayden. We find out he is Ruth's dad, and he's staying with them. I think because of some kind of injury. Am I am I right about that?
1: Um, I was a little foggy on this. Um, I mean, we 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 learned that he's what some sort of like great explorer, safari type guy. Um, yeah, and a photographer it, maybe. I, yeah, yeah, I guess so. You know, uh, he's kind of you know the uh, you know s- safari guy in the classic sense where he's he's studying. Uh, you know, the the world and, and probably writing about it and taking photos. But, mm-hmm. but there's a sense that, like, his adventuring days are perhaps over, right?
0: Yeah, sort of. I mean, I think they're trying to give him Ernest Hemingway energy. Mm, okay. He has enormous shotguns on the wall. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, with, like, shells the size of soda cans. Uh, <laughs> so I think these are meant for elephants or something um but so after we meet these characters oh and and of course uh the grandpa and uh, and Ruth uh talk about how she's got to leave town soon and she's worried about leaving uh leaving the young boy there with him because she's like oh he's got asthma um but i, I don't know it seems like it's going to be fine so uh, so she's like <laughs> okay i, I got to head out Um, and then things immediately start getting juicy because we start seeing the conspiracy, uh, Oliver Reed and Susan George, uh, you know, the, the housekeeper, Louise, when they're talking in private, um, she is washing Ruth's jewelry. Uh, That's interesting. Washing the jewelry. I don't know if that's supposed to say something about, about Ruth being really, uh, really fussy about fancy things or something. Um, but that's what she's doing. And then uh, they're talking about something coming up. They're they're plotting in secret about something. And Oliver Reed appears to be having misgivings. He's like, look, this isn't just stealing cars. If something goes wrong, they're going to lock us up and throw away the key. And, uh, and he's wondering, will Jack Mel come through? And uh, Louise uh, assures him, yes, Jack Mel will come through. Now, there was a thing I noticed, I I don't know if you noticed this, but as Ruth is leaving the house, she's giving instructions to Louise, and she's saying, okay, uh, while I'm out of town, the house must be kept at uh, no less than 75 degrees, so the heat always <laughs> turned up to 75 or higher, um, which, I don't know, maybe my senses are off, but obviously that'd be normal in the summer, but like turning the heat in the winter up to 75, that sounds insanely high.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel a little guilty if I said uh, set it for 70, you know, uh, yeah. and I'll feel really guilty if I'm like, that's it, I'm going up to 71. Uh-huh. Uh, but even that'll be like, but just for a few minutes, just so I, I start feeling uh, my, you know, my toes again, uh, that sort of thing. 75 seems like it would be just like, it'd be like a jungle in there. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, because, yeah, like heater heat feels very different than natural heat. Like, if it's 75 degrees outside, oh, that's nice weather. But if it's 75 degrees from a heater, that's like, you know, you're going under the gates. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here.
1: Well, I think we see, don't, well, now that I think about it, it looks like it's gas, right? So they're probably just completely dried out in there, which I guess oh. is why we also see the reliance on the humidifiers.
0: Oh, that's right. Yeah. So they keep it at 75, but also the kid sleeps with the humidifier. The humidifier, I think the idea is he's got asthma and the humidifier maybe delivering some kind of medication in the steam.
1: Mm, yeah, because there is that, uh, I would say, effectively creepy scene where we see that Jock Mel, uh, jumping ahead a little bit here, but where Jock Mel ha- checks on the house that they have set up, the place they want to take the boy after they kidnap him. And they have uh-huh. the same machinery there, like they're intended to have like a long stay uh, at the kidnapping house, which uh, which was creepy. Right. But of course, they never get to that house because the, the
0: criminals in this movie are bad at crime. Uh, so mm-hmm. Oliver Reed takes Ruth to the airport. So the mother leaves town. And then at about 11 minutes into the movie, the two devils collide. Oliver Reed meets Jacques Mel, who is uh, Klaus Kinski. They meet at the airport. They come face to face. It's clear from the very first moment that they do not like each other, but they are, they're locked into this conspiracy together now.
1: Yes, and Louise is the sensual glue holding the whole thing together. Um, and of course, that's going to be one of the great complicating uh, um, situations in the plot is that she is the one who dies first.
0: Right, and I think it's implied that she's been having love affairs with both of them. Right. Oh, and as soon as they get in the... So they go off to the car, and and of course, uh, Oliver Reed has a gun for Jock Mel, and he drops him off at a house in the country that they've rented ahead of time, and this is where they're going to stash the kid while they're holding him for ransom. So we get to see Jock Mel going around the house, uh, pulling the curtains aside, uh, inspecting the rooms... And uh, and when oh, and then Louise shows up at the house and the two of them are conspiring. So Klaus Kinski and Susan George are, are you know, checking in on how the, the plot is coming along. And and Jacques Mel says he doesn't trust the chauffeur. He says his hands
1: sweat, which I love. It's like, oh, he's not cool like you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You get the, the sense that Kinski's character, Jacques Mel does not sweat at all. Uh, But so Jack Mel lures Sterling Hayden out of the house.
0: Uh, I think they're they're trying to get uh, they're trying to find a way to get him away so that they can take the kid. And so they lure him away by pretending to be a filmmaker who wants uh, grandpa's help on on a film shoot in Central Africa. And he tells him to come meet for a cocktail at the Tower Hotel Uh, but of course, uh, grandpa goes to meet with the filmmaker who will in fact never show up because it's Klaus Kinski just pretending to be somebody else is just a ruse to get him out of the house. Meanwhile, Philip is uh, off in a taxi to the pet shop. And here is the Mm -hmm. scene where things finally really kick off, I think, because he acquires his snake.
1: Yeah, supposed to get a, just a normal you know, non-venomous pet snake. I forget uh, what variety it was supposed to be. But there's a, a mix-up. The black mamba that is supposed to go to what the London Zoological Society or something, um, that's going to you know, end up being studied or something, you know, it, it instead goes to this boy. It's put in a box uh, for Philip, and he is taking it home on a taxi. Right. So, uh, and then we we the plot is exposed when we cut
0: to it's the London Institute of Toxicology, and that's, that's where it uh, is, yeah. where Sarah Miles works. So they're checking on their uh, she and uh, a couple of researchers there are checking out their new live specimen of of the black mamba. This this would be Dendroaspis uh, polylepis. And they're like, this isn't the right snake at all. So something's wrong here. And, uh, and on closer inspection, they discover it is a harmless species of snake commonly sold as a pet. And there must've been some kind of mix up. So they quickly trace this back to, I I don't know why they were getting a black mamba from a London pet shop, but they were. And uh, so they, they trace it back to the pet shop and they realize there must've been a mix up there. And she immediately calls the police and uh, she's like, hello, I'm calling from the, you know, the toxicology Institute. And the policeman is like, toxicology, that's poisons, isn't it? And uh, <laughs> she explains that there's been this mix up and some kid must have just walked out of the shop with a black mamba and they really play up the danger of the snake. It is the most deadly thing on the planet. It might as well be a nuclear bomb.
1: Yeah. I mean, there are moments later in the film where it's like, there's a black mamba upstairs. You should absolutely not go upstairs. Like, going upstairs is just a no-go. You will die if you go up there. Now, meanwhile, the crime plot is already getting screwed
0: up. Uh, As we said, this is a movie about criminals who are quite bad at crime. So Philip was supposed to stay home so Louise could put him in a car with Jack Mel, who would kidnap him for ransom. But he didn't stay home. He went to the store to get his snake. So eventually he comes back with his snake and she's frantic and she's like, hello, I need you to get directly into a car with this man who you've never met before and is Klaus Kinski. <laughs> and, the, and the kid is like, uh, no, I will not be doing that. I have to put my snake into its vivarium. Uh, so he runs inside to do that. And then Oliver Reed is there and Oliver Reed's just angry. He's angry
1: at this child for failing to be kidnapped. Uh, and then, yeah, he's just like insulting the child, which uh, yes. which was weird. He's like he's like he's such a brat or something. You know, yeah. it's like the total outburst.
0: Yeah, and then Louise chases young Master Philip up to his room, where they open the snake box, and she is just immediately bitten in the face a bunch of times by the black mamba. Uh, yeah, it's the, a frightening scene too. Yeah, yeah, and then the snake slithers away into the shadows. Uh, meanwhile, Sterling Hayden arrives back home. So the I guess he's given up on waiting for the German filmmaker at the, at the cocktail lounge. He wasn't supposed to be there, but he arrives and Philip's still there. Louise, who's been bitten on the face by the snake a bunch of times is like, I am dying. And everybody's like, oh, you'll be fine. It's just a harmless house snake. And then Oliver Reed just starts punching grandpa And Jack Mel points a gun at him and is like, you know, I'm in charge. It is not time to punch grandpa until I say it's time to punch grandpa. (laughs) So they lock Sterling Hayden in the cellar. And then we see Oliver Reed loading a gun. And this is the one you were talking about earlier. Like it must be an elephant gun or something because the Mm -hmm. shells are enormous. And then the badness at crime just continues. Like a policeman arrives and knocks at the door, I guess, because the toxicology lab Uh, figured out that this is the address of the boy who accidentally took home the super snake and Mm -hmm. the policeman knocks Philip shouts for help from inside the house. And then the officer opens the front door to just see this tableau of, of Oliver Reed (laughs) holding a shotgun, Klaus Kinski clutching a terrified child, Susan George with her face turning purple and she's gasping for air. And then Oliver Reed just shoots the police officer And the kid in and so like everything is screwed up now. So now they are in the house having shot a police officer outside and they are not going to escape to their hiding place with with the kid for ransom. Now they're just in the house with the cops outside and it's a siege. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
3: Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a beginner man. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details.
2: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.
1: Yeah, so at this point, we're very much in, like— they say the best laid plans of mice and men, uh, and you know, go astray. Uh, this was not a very well laid plan, and it has definitely gone astray. Uh, but but this is a, a common feature in a lot of crime shows and crime stories. You know, it's like the the heist doesn't go as as it's supposed to, and now we have to deal with the consequences of that. And then here come the police. Uh, that's going to be our next big movement in the plot. And I, I will say that one of the things I, I, I liked about the film that I thought made it very watchable is that it has very strong procedural bones. You know, mm. um, you're laying out like what the, the 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 you know poorly thought out criminal enterprise uh, is, seems to be, like what their plan is, and then there's a lot in the film about the police officers responding and getting advice and trying to figure out like what is the the proper strategic move to make, and it really helps to. You know, drive the film uh, along in you know, in a way that I I thought was ultimately entertaining. Like I was reading Ebert's review of the film, and Ebert was like, "Despite all these actors, this film's boring." And I disagree. I I don't think this film is ever boring. <laughs> it falls short in some notable areas, but um, but it's never boring. Oh, I agree. And uh, yeah, you're right about the procedural stuff. Wait, uh, you made this
0: comparison off, Mike. Did you say it on, Mike? That it's kind of like Shin Godzilla in that regard.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's kind of like the Shin Godzilla of loose snake movies uh-huh. uh, in that, you know, there's a lot of, well, let's talk to the expert and see what they think we should do. OK, let's talk to another expert. What did they think? And uh, and so forth. Shin Godzilla is the best movie
0: ever made about meetings. And uh, mm-hmm. th- this is this is a very good movie about, yeah, little little strategy sessions where people uh, are talking out their next plans <laughs> Oh, 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 I should have mentioned after all that last stuff happens, like around the, you know, uh, one third of the way into the movie, uh, Louise dies. So, you know, they thought she'd just been bitten by this harmless house snake, but then she turns completely blue. There's blood coming out of her mouth and she's dead. And the other crime boys are like, "Ooh, whoops, uh, maybe there is something bad about this snake. And uh, and so then the uh, the police arrive, and this is when we really meet. Uh, Nicole Williamson. He arrives. He sets up outside. He's trying to do negotiations with Jack Mel. Uh, these negotiations will continue for throughout the the middle third of the movie. Of course, uh, of course, Klaus Kinski. He wants a car and money in exchange for the kid's safety, and they're not going to get that yet. So the act two setup is complete, and from here it goes on to a lot of you know the standard fun and games part of a creature movie, where there's a lot of mamba cam and like hunting around for the snake. They're, they send Grandpa up to to hunt for the snake, and he's holding like a lamp with the shade taken off.
1: Mm-hmm. And there are some uh, some some false positives in his search for the snake that uh, that I yeah. think work pretty well on the screen. But he knows what it is because he's, uh,
0: you know, from all his safari experiences, he's familiar with black mambas and and the fact that they can be dangerous. So he's like, okay, we, you know, we're really in trouble with this thing in the house. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, one scene I thought was pretty good was the one with Sterling Hayden hunting around for the snake in the in the empty room.
1: I wonder if this is perhaps something that maybe worked uh, better in the book, like if the book allow the, the author more room to sort of ruminate over like tales of the mamba from from africa that uh, mm. grandpa would be familiar with and maybe grandpa thinking about like just how intensely dangerous the situation is like maybe it was able to to drive home this idea of the mamba being such a threat in ways that the film maybe struggled to do at times
0: yeah i mean a lot of what we know about the the mamba in the movie gets filled in by these scientists. So like it around, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, there's a lot of the, the sort of cat and mouse games in the middle third of the movie. And somewhere like an hour in, there's this meeting between Nicole Williamson and, uh, and Marian Stowe, the snake scientist. And this is where they talk about, you know, he's like, how dangerous is it? Because uh, she, she's finally gotten the information to him that there's a killer snake inside. And, uh, and she says it's the most dangerous snake in the whole world. Uh, and she, but she gives it all these sort of, anthropomorphic qualities. She says, like, they're they're very aggressive, but they tend to be a little awkward, paranoid, really. Um, And uh, she says they happen to be the fastest snake in the world. And she says, uh, unless the bite victim gets antidote immediately or anti-venom immediately, mamba bites are 100% fatal. But she says if you get uh, the
1: antidote to the venom, it's a 50-50 chance, provided that the victim is not allergic to it. I'll go ahead and mention again that California Herps website uh, reminds us that there are some uh, some some suspect mamba facts in this movie. So don't watch Venom uh, uh, just for uh, your education on black mambas. Uh, go to right. other sources. Right. But also, I mean, it, it is certainly true that the black mamba is
0: one of the more dangerous snakes on Earth in terms of interactions with humans. Like if you see one, don't go anywhere near it. You know, that thing, it probably doesn't want anything to do with you, but you do not want to be bitten
1: by it. Right. But can it smell crime? Does it own the <laughs> night? Um, I mean, these are, these are questionable. Yeah. Uh, now
0: there's a, there's a fun scene where they send out uh, Sarah Miles to deliver a snake science lecture to the people in the house. So, you know, the house is besieged <laughs> by cops and she just goes out in front of it to like tell them about the, the mamba and its venom. So they do keep saying poisonous snake, by the way, the, the pedantic part of my brain couldn't let that go. <laughs> Uh, And through some devious trickery, Klaus Kinski eventually manages to get the snake scientist or the the toxicologist, Dr. Stowe, into the into the house by pulling a gun on her. Um, uh, He tricks her into thinking that she can administer an antidote to someone who has been bitten. But really, it's just him pointing a gun in her
1: face. So she's a hostage now as well. Uh, I love how basically Jock Mel is approaching this situation. It's like, what got us into this problem? Kidnapping. Uh What will get us out of this situation? More kidnapping. (laughs) Right, exactly.
0: Um, and so there's a bunch of stuff with the, the police scheming about maybe back entrances to the house. This, I think, is part of the, the Shin Godzilla quality you were talking about, little strategy mm-hmm. sessions where they're like consulting the building plans of the house. They're like, there used to be a back entrance. We could maybe bust through there. Uh, and then meanwhile, inside the house – there's a great scene where everybody's just sitting around it's it's Oliver Reed and Sarah Miles and Oliver Reed's like I'm thirsty I fancy a drink how about you?
1: Yeah and uh, th- this is a, I love this moment because um, Reed's character Dave he kind of enters into this comfort zone offering the the drink and he's listing all the different liquors that are available and he's like we've got most things mm-hmm. um, and uh, it, it puts you completely <laughs> at ease because then when he opens up the drink cabinet and you find yourself just you know like oh well, I want to see these bottles uh, uh yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I am curious. Maybe I'll have a drink, too, Oliver. Uh-huh. Uh, He's going to then... make a white Russian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then he opens it up. And what is in the liquor cabinet but the mamba? There you go.
0: It's, it's a snake pop out scare. It's a great snake pop out scare. I got to say I really
1: enjoyed it. It is, And
0: the, 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 the special horror of like Oliver Reed realizes that the snake is in there with the alcohol.
1: Yeah, at first I thought that was going to be the thing. It's almost like a Simpsons moment. Like, oh no, the beer is is locked up with the snake. No one can uh-huh. get the beer now. Uh, that sort of thing. But then, yeah, there's this scene where they, they then pull the liquor cabinet away from the wall. And we see the snake slither through like a crack in the back of the liquor cabinet into the wall. It's a duct. Did you understand this?
0: It's there, a duct? There is a duct. I did not know. I, well, I mean, I think I understood what I was looking at, but... It's a, so it's not like built into the wall. It's a liquor cabinet that is a separate piece of furniture. It's like a chest or a wardrobe kind of thing almost. As the cabinet opens up, it's got all the liquor inside. But there is a hole in the back of it where there's a duct leading into the wall, like connecting it. I hmm. I don't know. I I don't know what that was supposed to be or if that's normal. I mean, do you normally have a duct going from
1: the wall to a separate piece of furniture containing liquor bottles? I can't imagine you would. But then again it It's necessary for this scare to work because otherwise, oh this the snake is just stuck in the liquor cabinet now, and okay, he's in there well now now we've won now we can just nail the liquor cabinet shut, uh but uh no, it gets away, it's back in the walls, it goes wherever it wants to in this house
0: now, so the police are scheming about ways to breach the house to get in there and and save the hostages. But I think the funny thing is that ultimately the police fail in this regard, and it is the snake, in fact, that defeats the criminals.
1: Yeah, the snake is ultimately the hero of the picture, uh, dispensing uh, with all three kidnappers uh, and and never, I mean, threatening, I guess, but never actually harming any of um, the non-criminals in the picture. Yeah, it's a lawful good snake. (laughs) Can smell crime, I think. Yes, yes.
0: Uh, I, I don't know how much detail we want to go into about the, the particular demise of Oliver Reed or Klaus Kinski's characters, Oliver Reed. Uh, he they're like down in the basement and s- suddenly the police bust in through the wall and, mm-hmm. uh, and they're having a standoff, they're shooting at each other, but then there's a snake and the police are like snake. And they, <laughs> they have to run away and go back out the, bro- you know, the <laughs> breach in the wall. It was like, you you were more scared of the snake than the gun.
1: I know, it's like a xenomorph in this thing. Uh-huh. Uh, but but um, uh, Reed's character, Dave, is shot. He's like shot in the shoulder. So he's, uh, he's, he's heavily injured. Uh, and he can't quite crawl up the stairs. And that's when uh, the Mamba comes for him. In a,
0: in a quite gratuitous uh, scene of like creature revenge against human evil, Oliver Reed is bitten in the crotch by the snake. and, and yep, goes is. right up the pants
1: leg. Yeah.
0: And now that, it's I'm just, just... Jock Mel. Right. But I'm imagining like the writing that scene. Was, you know, like <laughs> what what did that look like on the page? The snake slithers slowly up his thigh. Oliver Reed's great in this scene though. He totally sells yeah. it. Uh, but then of course the snake in the end also has to attack the one remaining criminal, Jacques Mel. Uh, we see it like creeping up through curtains behind him as the music yeah, builds. Yeah. And then it like, it springs out and attacks him. And, and literally like the final conflict of the movie is, is Klaus Kinski wrestling a snake and engaging in a gunfight with a snake
1: yeah like thrashing around in the like the living upstairs living room or whatever it happens to be um, yeah trying to shoot the snake's head off with his own gun. Um, Eventually the fight goes out onto the balcony and the whole time, like it's clearly a rubber snake. It's Mm. Kinski uh, battling this rubber snake. And then uh, especially when he fires the gun, that's when the snipers start firing, the police snipers start firing. So Kinski's character and the snake die in a hail of bullets and then fall off the balcony. Um, And uh, my only criticism is that the body does not become impaled On the the, like the spiked uh, fence at the bottom that I think would have been would have made it a little more perfect but maybe they thought that would that would just be overdoing it I don't know.
0: I thought it should have ended with the snake slithering down Klaus Kinski's throat and biting him from the inside like going right to the heart. (laughs) Yeah, yeah coils around his heart
1: and bites it a hundred (laughs) times. But basically, that's the big finish. Uh, yeah, the now all of the kidnappers are dead. Uh, the black mamba itself is dead, and everybody is safe once again. Or are they? Oh, that's right, because we
0: get a, a, a delightful stinger in which you go into the heating ducts and you see some
1: some eggs, some snake eggs up in there. I guess they're being mm-hmm. incubated by the by the gas heat. Not only that, they've hatched. There's like a baby mamba crawling Uh out of one so it's it's not only mamba time once more in this uh in this house but it's also going to be like double mambas uh so you know set up for the sequel here i guess is
0: that like it's miller time it's mamba time
1: (laughs) yeah yeah i mean they could have done a sequel i mean they were able to make all those um taken movies it's it's i think you could come up with another scenario in which you have uh kidnappers or terrorists or something <laughs> to you know taking them. over the house
0: <laughs> the exact same family the exact same house and it's two snakes mm-hmm. this time two snakes yeah okay who would have to play the criminals in the, the the sequel it would be uh how about how about gary Busey and robert mitchum
1: Ooh, yeah was uh well was robert mitchum still alive at that point can't remember when he died 1997 okay yeah he could have done it sure um I don't know. I don't know if I want to see like mid eighties Robert Mitchum wrestling a snake, though. I don't know. Um, I don't want to see that.
0: <laughs>
1: at any rate, it, it never came to be. We never got a sequel to Venom. Uh, but uh, you know, like I say, I, I feel like it's a it is a movie that is essentially ludicrous. Like the the premise at the center of this movie is is just ridiculous. I mean, the the idea that this snake is just so dangerous. And wants to kill people, wants to kill criminals uh, or, you know, or anybody that gets near it. Um, you know, it's just uh, ultimately I, I never I never really bought it in the film, you know, uh, like I'm, I'm quick to give something credit if it works within the context of the film. And this never quite did that. But we still have some great snake scares. Uh, we have uh, some fun performances and we have this procedural energy kind of driving things along. All right. Well, you're probably wondering, well, where can I watch Venom? Well, lucky for you, it's widely available for digital rental or purchase. And also Blue Underground uh, put out a nice looking Blu-ray of it as well with a restored 2K transfer. Um, so you can, you can watch this movie yourself via those means. Uh, also, I'll stress again, the novel is out there in digital and physical form. So, uh, I would love to hear from anyone who's read the novel Venom and can uh, chime in on it. And you might be wondering, well, I haven't read it, but could I read it and then tell Robin, Joe, what it's all about and give my review? Yes, you can absolutely do that. Uh, I would love to to have some insight into the the novel that came before
0: here. Now, wouldn't it be great if Venom was one of those films that had a novel and then a movie and then a novelization of the movie separate from the original novel?
1: Oh yeah, you see that sometimes. For me, the most notable example being um, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, in which, of course, it is an adaptation of Dracula, but there is also a novelization of the film. Genius. Yeah, which I I always found outrageous cuz it's not like Dracula the original is an unreadable text. Like did it really need to be updated uh you know in in terms of the the, the written version? I, I don't know. Um uh, No, I mean it, I, I, so it was so it could say uh
0: that, you know uh Jonathan Arker, who looked like the American actor Keanu Reeves arrived in uh <laughs> where does he go? I don't you know, Budapest or <laughs>
1: <laughs> Oh, doesn't uh, Dracula have a mustache in the original? bram stoker's dracula maybe that was it in the movie or in the novel in the novel i don't recall i don't recall how uh, he's no. described i could be wrong on that but wouldn't it have been funny though if they were like okay standard operating procedure we need a novelization of this film and they they assign it to somebody and what if they just turned in a copy of bram stoker's dracula <laughs> and, and they're like <laughs> it was good. just it was such a great adaptation like as it just as it worked out it uh, the, the the novelization of the film is the original novel That's just smart. Yeah. I didn't even realize that I had completely reproduced the original Bram Stoker's Dracula. I was just adapting the film.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you're going to do it with any film, I I will say the the Coppola adaptation is unusually faithful to the novel, much more so than... Uh, than most other adaptations I can think of.
1: Yeah, and and also has some really fun performances in it. Yeah. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and close the the liquor cabinet on this serpent, uh, but we will be back with other episodes of Weird House Cinema. They publish every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We're primarily a science and culture podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We have listener mail on Mondays and artifact episodes. Those are shorties on Wednesdays. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get
0: in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to
2: Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio.
1: it's Zumo Play.